A series of protests and blockades have broken out in Canada in response to the COVID-19 mandates and restrictions installed by the Canadian government domestically and with cross-border traffic with the United States. Gaining the name the Freedom Convoy, in part due to being led by some Canadian truckers, the protesters converged on the city of Ottawa and are refusing to leave until the restrictions are lifted. These blockades have caused traffic jams and blockades at the American-Canadian border and negatively impacted both nations' economies. Which begs the question, how will these protests play out and what are the potential ramifications of these blockades? From Seton Hall University at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations, this is The Global Current. I am your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation in Canada today is Christopher Benitos-Cortez. Hi, Christopher. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. And focusing on the international aspect today is Kiarn Biskansen. Hi, Kiarn. Hi, how are you? Good. So let's just get right into it, guys. I want to start, first of all, with the background of the political situation in Canada. So I'll turn to you, Christopher, on when was the Canadian-American border originally closed early on in the pandemic? The Canadian-American border was closed in early March, as did many international borders throughout the world, as the lockdown started taking place. Mm -hmm. So what are the requirements and the regulations that the Canadian government has put in place? As of now, the Canadian government is requiring that all people who will cross the border have a negative COVID test and be willing to isolate themselves for 15 days to have that plan ready. On November 19th, the Public Health Agency of Canada released new regulations for the entry and exit of truckers into and out of the country that would come into effect on January 15th. And in them, truckers and other essential workers were mandated to have been vaccinated with one of the shots approved by the World Health Organization. A month earlier, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security had put up similar requisites for essential workers crossing the border. I see. So with these restrictions put in place, has there been... I don't know, any testing difficulties or logistical problems for the Canadian government enforcing these guidelines and restrictions? Um, as of shortly before the protests, procuring nasal rapid tests, which were essential for these processes, was a particular challenge, as it was around the world, but specifically in Canada. The federal government had promised to deliver these tests to the provincial health authorities for distribution by January, and early on in the month, the provinces were unaware of any scheduling for these deliveries which caused much public outcry. I see. And you, you're, on your point about public outcry, I also want to talk about the public reactions to the restrictions. Then I'll address that question to you, Kieran, of the logistical tef testing difficulties that the Canadian government is facing right now. Yeah. So as anyone who's familiar with international travel uh, during um, COVID, especially in the last year in 2021, such as myself, Testing is an immensely frustrating and difficult process, especially considering time zones, flights. But in the context of the Canadian-American border, when you're waiting for a PCR test, which is the universal standard for more, most international travel, you're waiting minimum of three days, if not more, depending on how overwhelmed labs are. Uh, we saw with the kind of 
a mild peak with Omicron, that uh, labs were overwhelmed with tests, both rapid tests and PCR, which are the critical ones to this story. And so you had long delays in people getting the results for the test that would allow them to cross the border, which led to further delays in, from a logistical perspective. I see. And I, I can see where that would be very difficult, especially in a situation on the American-Canadian border, which is used to the free exchange and free flow of traffic. There's not much restrictions at the border put in place and where with the testing put in place, it has caused a lot of blockades and jamming in the traffic going between the two nations. Correct. And it's it's exacerbated any pre-existing supply shocks that we might have seen throughout much of COVID. So knowing this, uh, I'd like to ask this question of you both, and either one of you can step in, is what have been the public reactions within Canada specifically, and then we can move on to the United States to the current protests? Have they been negative, positive? What is the overall story from this? Okay, yeah, so from an international perspective really quickly, this has been a very interesting phenomenon to observe in the United States. Within Canada itself, it doesn't seem like these issues pull as well as they do in the United States. Generally, there isn't as much sympathy for this particular movement in Canada. Not that there isn't any, but not as much as in the United States, where it has really provoked quite a strong reaction. It has gotten international attention with smaller protests um, that have copied the Canadian model, um, not just in the United States, where it's actually been relatively minuscule, but in places like France, Australia, uh, New Zealand, Israel, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, to name a few. And so generally speaking, you actually see this effect in which more people internationally support the efforts in Canada than in Canada itself, where Canadians are either indifferent at best or totally against it at worst. I see. So this is not so these protests are attracting attention both internationally, but it seems domestically there is more concern of what the restrictions are doing to both traffic and the economic relationship and affecting the livelihood of the people there. Correct. To see. So do you have a point to add to that, Christopher? Absolutely. Polls have been taken in Canada as of late, and one taken by Leger stipulates that 62% of respondents oppose to this caravan. Another poll taken by Abacus Data states that 68% of respondents have, quote, very little in common with the protesters. I see. So it seems where the protesters, or the point of view from where they're coming from, has limited support across the Canadian populace to a certain extent. So moving on from the domestic situation in Canada and focusing on the consequences of these protests, I want to talk a little bit about the American-Canadian relationship, trade relationship, and economic relationship. So what has been the general effect of these protests on the trade between the two countries? Yeah, so it's, it's actually been quite drastic. You can get onto the actual organization and structure of these protests, but to put it quite shortly, it's actually been remarkably effective in being disruptive. You know, many, many union organizers in the U.S. might actually be quite jealous of the organizing capacity and sophistication of this movement, which has single-handedly shut down a huge, at the time, shut down a huge portion of U.S.-Canadian trade. The main example that a lot of people have been pointing to is the closure of the Ambassador Bridge, which is a bridge between Canada and the U.S. state of Michigan and is responsible for about 25% of all of Canadian trade. Uh, particularly as a result, as it relates to the United States, a large part of our automotive industry, which is located in Michigan, so GMC, Ford, etc., ship a lot of their automotive material and either finished or unfinished products to either be finished or sold in Canada across this bridge. So by sealing entry and exit through this bridge, they single-handedly ended 25% of U.S.-Canadian trade within, within a fortnight, essentially. I see. So the drastic effects of this organization, while they enjoy limited support in their home country, they've been efficient in disruption 
to a certain extent of trade between the United States and Canada. And you mentioned the effects on the American auto industry, specifically in Michigan. Have there been calls from American officials, specifically within the state of Michigan, in response to this? Yeah, so this was very interesting. You know, this phenomena was more of a, an online debate between American citizens until it started hitting the American financial system. When profits started going down in the U.S. automotive industry, so particularly Ford, GMC, and Toyota all lost collectively around a billion during the week closure of the Ambassador Bridge. There were calls by Gretchen Whitmer, who's the governor of Michigan, as well as Joe Biden with the Canadian government, particularly Trudeau, to kind of crack down on this and get it, quote, resolved. So once there was actually, <laughs> uh, once the bottom line in many of these corporations was implicated and the American financial system started to churn and get upset, then you see government action on the part of the U.S. to pressure the Canadian government to handle this. I see. So it was more of a spectacle viewed f- with just a little bit of detachment from the American populace. But now that it, once it started to affect the American economy, that's when the state governments and even the federal government started to step in and say, we need this handled because it's affecting the automobile industry and the trade between the two countries. Yeah, the one point I might contest on that is that the American public has actually been quite involved in this. Most of the money that has been donated to this cause has actually come from American citizens Mm -hmm. through various donation sites like GoFundMe, many of which are also American companies. But the political reaction to this, right, the impetus to pressure the Canadian government to do something hasn't actually come from the American public, but the government itself, which was indifferent until these financial ties had had, had started to kind of pull, pull their strings, essentially. I think that's a good point here, and I just want to ask you a follow-up to that, is that do you think part of the reason there's been support from that amongst, like, Americans just because they see in this a similar movement to what, or feelings being expressed to what they would express in the United States right now against COVID guidelines? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm going to actually go to Christopher on the Canadian views on COVID restrictions in general, but very quickly I might say that American and Canadian views on COVID restrictions Mm -hmm. generally are much uh, much more complex <laughs> um, than one might assume. The the American public, obviously, as many people in this country know, has been immensely divided and fallen into kind of partisan hackery mm-hmm. over, over COVID restrictions for various reasons, good and bad. Mm-hmm. The Canadians, generally speaking, have had a more positive view of COVID restrictions and have garnered a different reaction. So just to look at you, Chris, off that point that Kieran just made, I want to ask you about the the restrictions, of course, with the how there's been a reaction in Canada, but also the effect on the Canadian political situation, most of all, of like leadership within Canadian parties or their support back and forth. Absolutely. So there has been a major shift into Canadian rights with this convoy. Due to the polarizing nature of this controversy, there have been significant impacts, particularly on the Canadian Conservative Party, which up until now was under the leadership of Erin O'Toole, which has been perceived as a more progressive and more toothless leader against Trudeau and his Liberals. O'Toole was voted out of power as head of the Conservative uh, Party and head of the opposition on February 2nd by a margin of 73 to 45 within his own party. He is replaced by Candace Bergen, a Tory member of parliament from Manitoba as an interim leader. One of the key favorites, however, to contest the conservative leadership race and therefore candidacy to prime minister in the next election is Pierre Polyevre. Pierre Polyevre is a a member of parliament from Eastern Ontario, and he has openly announced his candidacy for Prime Minister on February 5th, and he is seen as more a right-wing populist by most in the Canadian establishment. Polyevre has amassed support among his fellow Tory parliamentarians on social media, establishing him as a front-runner in this race, 
So far, no other contender in the party has arisen. What we can tell is that on the other side of the spectrum, however, Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, is definitely behind Trudeau and his policy of not negotiating with the protesters. Trudeau has infamously called for the 1987 legislation known as the Emergency Act. He invoked it on February 14th, and it is designed to suspend basic civil liberties for, it to, for the government to establish law and order in the case of unexpected events such as these. The act replaces the War Measures Act, which is best remembered for being invoked by Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's father, to put, Mon to put Montreal under a curfew in 1970 during the October crisis in which left-wing independence advocating terrorists from Quebec kidnapped a provincial cabinet minister and a British diplomat. In that scenario, Trudeau, the father, managed to negotiate with the terrorists, which resulted in them fleeing to Cuba in exchange for the liberation of the diplomat. In the present scenario, however, Trudeau, the son, has been very unwilling to negotiate, and the Ottawa Police Department ended up towing trucks. The Canadian Civil Liberties Union condemned this invocation of the Emergencies Act, which was finally reversed on February 23rd. The Emergencies Act also allows the federal government of Canada to commandeer local law enforcement or, uh, or units of the RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, to, quote, regulate or prohibit any public assembly that may be reasonably expected to lead to a breach of peace, travel to, from, within, or any specified area, or the use of specified property. In this case, the Ottawa Police Department did most of the law enforcement job. I see. So to kind of summarize that information that you just gave, Christopher, it seems that these these protests have acted as a political springboard for some within the Canadian Conservative Party while also be resulting in the downfall of some others. You mentioned the policies that Prime Minister Trudeau has put in place. So I wanted to ask you as a follow-up question, that is, how is Prime Minister Trudeau's handling of the situation affected him politically? Because it seems he's invoked some severe restrictions to, uh, in effect, solve the economic problems that the protests have generated. I would dare say that Prime Minister Trudeau has gone from this unscathed. As we mentioned earlier, 68% of Canadians polled see nothing in common with the protesters, meaning that this was probably something Trudeau will sweat off very easily and what, what will make him run for his position at the next election, whenever that may be, is the fielding of a different candidate from the Conservative Party rather than this. In other words, an effect of this crisis will have an effect on the election, not the crisis itself, not how Trudeau managed it. I see. So, in a sense, it benefits him somewhat politically or that... If there is any detriments to how he has handled this, it's something he'll be easily able to shake off by the time this could really affect him in the upcoming races for prime minister. Absolutely. I see. Now that we have a grasp of the political situation, I also want to turn towards the financial situation because we talked about earlier about the disruption in between the United States and Canada. How has the blockade been financially disruptive to a certain extent? I'll address that to you, Kieran. Sure. I mean, we already talked a little bit about aspects of this protest impact in the United States automotive industry, but actually to get into the funding of this itself, you know, the protest was actually very well organized. Um, not only did truckers, you know, 
block off key bridges and, and certain aspects, parts of the city. But they had food lines and blanket lines, and it was actually it was quite sophisticated in terms of the organization. Much of this was actually funded, like I said, from the United States earlier, but from around the world and within Canada itself. Much of this was done through third-party donation sites. A lot of people are familiar with GoFundMe, but other notable sites in this venture were a lot of Christian, actually, donation sites like Give, Send, Go. Critically, these platforms, third-party platforms, were designed and run on the idea that they actually will not take people's money or, or withhold transactions regardless of the political cost and purely be neutral and just be a medium for funds to go from uh, one place to another and particularly as it as it pertains to small dollar donations which you saw a lot of with this particular protest i see has there been any increase in these donations as the protest went on or a decrease in these donations anonymously through these various websites that you mentioned yeah so especially as this has gotten more coverage from international media and as it kind of frankly exploded in the United States as a political story, even though it doesn't take place within the United States, donations increased significantly. You also saw one of the, one of the, one of the aspects of, of the Canadian crackdown on this was to petition American companies like Give, Send, Go, GoFundMe that, that are these third-party transaction uh, donation sites to withhold funds from the, uh, from the trucker convoy donation pools. And you actually did see for a, a period of time a temporary interdiction of a lot of these, a lot of these funds coming from the United States into Canada, which caused quite an uproar. I see how that could cause quite an uproar of like anonymous donations uh, being halted by, in effect, actions by the federal government to a certain extent. Critically, these were also small dollar donors, right? Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about PACs or super PACs where you have these kind of dark money groups in the U.S. political sphere. We're talking about the average person who sees something on Twitter and throws five dollars their way, right? I this think. is a person who is not you know, dealing in anything more nefarious or has some corporate angle to them, right? More a restriction of political expression to a certain extent to the common people, which which shows at least the seriousness, I think, of the American federal government and wanting this these protests to be handled in a way to bring it back to just the resumption of the American Canadian economic relationship. Correct. I see. Off of that note, when we're still trying to focus on the financial aspect of this situation, how has this affected the American financial system? Yeah, so, I mean, it's really shown how quickly the American financial system, once it is threatened, can move to to get those in power to try and act on their behalf. It shows how upsetting the status quo when it comes to trade for what I think are eminently protestable questions, whether it be COVID restrictions, vaccine mandates, regardless of how you feel on these issues, um, you know, there should be open points of inquiry, I think, in any healthy democracy. It shows how quickly, once these bottom lines are threatened, that those moneyed interest, whether not necessarily Wall Street, but particularly the automotive industry, et cetera, move to kind of get governments to appeal to to crack down on both small dollar donors, but the protesters themselves. I see. So we're starting to see it's almost a contradiction to a certain extent because the automobile industry and you see Wall Street companies are able to send the, they're the ones making their money and their political will or aspirations known and ensuring that this crisis is handled, but the small dollar donations are the ones that get shut down. Correct. And I mean, I think a greater irony that hasn't been discussed as much in a lot of the coverage around this is the great irony between the automotive industry, which is deeply intertwined with the trucking industry, which also simultaneously claims to be a a thoroughly blue collar industry, right? Historically, it's been very working class, very unionized, especially in the United States. And what you see is, frankly, utter hypocrisy, I think, on their part. I see. So it's a what we're trying to get at here, I think, here, and then you and I mm-hmm. have both hinted at it, and Christopher's hinted at it as well, is that this is a very complicated situation with lots of factors involved. It's not 
even so much it started off as like COVID guidelines or protest against that. But it seems to me that there's a difference of like protest in the United States when it comes to COVID guidelines and restrictions and protest in Canada. Because we've talked about how the protests themselves may enjoy limited support in Canada and Canada is not quite as doesn't have the support of anti-vax groups or things such as that in Canada as there are more prone in the United States. I think that's broadly correct. I mean, you saw some, you know, limited anti-vax sentiment within the trucker protest, but it was by no means the majority. Um, You know, I think you have kind of a bad apples effect in, in that case. I think as it pertains to the United States, you know, U.S. protests against these have been much, much more disorganized and, and, and less coherent and well thought out. What's impressive about the about the um, Canadian situation when it comes to the trucker convoy is how well organized it was, despite this lack of broad popularity that you were that you were talking about, you know, broad indifference on the part of the Canadian population or for the residents of Ottawa themselves. <laughs> Quite distressed. I see. Do you have anything to add on to these points, Christopher? Well, it's, I would definitely say that. So this has impacted the citizens and authorities of Ottawa in a very interesting way. The Ottawa Police Department has been criticized very much for a rather soft response to the protesters. The Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly said in a press conference that we have had no riots, no injuries, no deaths. This is a measure of success for any jurisdiction in Canada and quite frankly anywhere in the world, end quote. He ended up resigning two weeks later. Trudeau has grown very frustrated with the protesters so much so that he called the Emergency Act. So there's definitely been a division, at least at the level of the authorities, as to how well the response was carried out. But we definitely saw scenes of Ottawa residents panicking, buying plenty of food and preparing for an emergency in what was clearly not expected to be as as grave as one would imagine. I see. Uh, so even the Canadian people, to a certain extent, were expre- or surprised about the dis- the extent of the disruption that these protests have generated, not just in the economic relationship, but affecting the domestic economic situation in Ottawa and Canada specifically. I also wanted to go back to a point that you made much earlier in the conversation, Kieran, about international protests in response to the Freedom Convoy gaining support that way. Do you have anything to add more on that? Yeah, so apart from them generally being smaller in scale um, than those in Canada, I think they were very much sparked by the reaction on the part of higher Canadian authorities to this protest. You actually saw some fairly draconian measures at at upper levels in the Canadian government towards this protest. While it was broadly peaceful, thankfully, and and, and Canadian police exercised a remarkable degree of restraint compared to certainly American police in recent COVID protests, you saw a crackdown on the Canadian financial system, essentially, right? So they, with... With the extra powers that were granted to Trudeau and the, and the government, you saw a crackdown on Canadian finances. So essentially, there was freezes on bank accounts. If you were associated with a protest or were seen going to a protest, that means your mortgage, your car payments, etc. Right. So these are quite actually <laughs> draconian and, and, and frankly authoritarian measures um, for what I think is again a, a fairly open line of inquiry right, re- regarding these mandates, even if it's not particularly my cause. I think much of the international reaction that was spurred on by those measures being introduced, I think a lot of people saw it as, for what it is, a, a significant overstep in Canadian authority. Obviously, there is a different culture around the way exercises power in Canada than in certain parts of the world, but particularly in places like France and Australia and New Zealand, places where COVID measures have been more draconian than the United States, you saw stronger reactions basically drawing a parallel between the Canadian government's crackdown on this and their own and their own countries. 
Um, one of the thing, one of the kind of exceptions to this rule I will point to is Israel, right? Which mm-hmm. um, has COVID vaccine mandate, broadly supportive of the population. Most of the population is boosted, etc. And you still saw these protests. So I see. And then we, there's also similarities in two between like France, which not too long ago experienced the yellow vest protest to a certain extent. Correct. Say, so it's no surprise that this has also garnered some international attention. Moving quickly on from that, because we don't have much time left, guys, I want to get your final thoughts on how do you think these protests will play out, and will this be a lingering issue affecting Canada in the near future? I'll start with you, Christopher. So I will say that this has affected Canada politically, but also very socially. As we can tell, there have been stark left-right divides when it comes to reactions on whether to support or to condemn the convoy. We can definitely see this be played out whenever the next Canadian elections are, considering the changes in the Conservative Party, changes in how Trudeau might be perceived among the population. This has definitely been a major wedge that has been driven into Canadian society. Briefly, I, I, you know, you see them mostly petered out at this point um, as, as of recording this on March 1st. But you've actually seen many Canadian provincial and state authorities actually relax their COVID restrictions in response to this. There, you know, there's been a, a very subtle and quiet shift to relax these COVID policies. So I think you have seen some movement there. I see. So hopefully it seems that the situation will continue to resolve itself in a more subtle and peaceful manner. This has been a great discussion, Christopher Kieran. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, David Babigian. Hey, David. Hello. Glad to have you on the show. So what headlines do you have for us this week? So Russia has launched an invasion of Ukraine. The Beijing Winter Olympics of 2022 is finally over, and North Korea resumes its missile testing. Those all sound very prominent news stories. Let's start with the Russian invasion. After waiting on the border for weeks, Russian President Vladimir Putin finally gave the orders for the Russian troops to cross over the border into Ukraine and start an invasion of the country. Ukrainian officials have reported missile attacks on the capital of Kyiv and multiple other cities. NATO has put warplanes on alert, but the Western Alliance has made it clear that there are no plans to send combat troops to Ukraine itself. A very serious ongoing situation, almost unprecedented in the current day. Now moving on, you mentioned the conclusion of the Winter Olympics? Yes, so the Beijing Winter Olympics ran from February 4th, 2022 to February 20th, 2022, with 84 different nations represented. Norway won with the most medals of 37, while the United States had a total of 25 medals coming in fifth overall. The United States tied for third for total gold medals as they had eight gold medals over the course of the event. I see a fitting conclusion to the Winter Games. And you mentioned North Korea as well? On Sunday, February 27th, North Korea tested a missile for the first time since January, according to South Korean and Japanese military officials. The United States condemned the latest launch and called on North Korea to, quote, cease destabilizing acts. Japan's defense minister, Nobu Kishi, said, quote, if North Korea deliberately carried out the missile launch while the international community is distracted by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, such an act is absolutely unforgivable. Thank you so much for coming on, David. Thank you for having me. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew. Executive producer Jarrett Dang, associate producer Jasmine DeLeon and Hamza Khan, technical producer Andrew Rukulia, and of course, your host, Drew Starbuck. 
The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.